Two and a Half Admins, episode 73. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is packet scheduling with DummyNet and FreeBSD. Tom's done a, a great job writing this article about how to use DummyNet to do traffic shaping and scheduling and queuing and so on. And it's a very powerful tool and can also be used for link emulation. Tom used it in his previous job to simulate satellite links that he had to actually work with. But, you know, being able to create a bunch of satellite links in your bedroom to do some testing before you go out in the field where it's cold to do the work is really helpful. Link to that in the show notes as usual then. Something you found, Alan, was quite a novel scam. And this is something that the Austin, Texas Police Department tweeted about. It's QR codes being stuck to parking meters that lead people to fraudulent sites where they're paying for parking, but it's not really paying for parking. It's actually quite clever in an evil way. Yeah, like uh, they don't have much detail. I don't know if these parking meters normally have a legit QR code and they just stuck a different QR code over top of it, or if... These particular meters didn't have QR codes, but somewhere nearby they do use QR codes, and so people are used to seeing them. And so when they stuck one on there, people zap it with their phone and, and send their money to somebody who is not the parking authority. I don't know about Austin, but around my neck of the woods in South Carolina, yes, the parking meters have QR codes on them. Uh, I believe scanning the QR code typically takes you to the uh, the app store to install the Passport app to do the paying with rather than, uh, you know, giving you the the number for the zone that you're paying. But, you know, once you install the Passport app, you open the app and you tell it what zone you're parked in and you pick which of your cars you've already entered into the app and it pays for that certain amount of time. But if you don't already have the app, the easiest way to get it, especially for iPhone type people who, in my experience, are more likely to be the QR code scanning types, you just, you know, point your iPhone at the QR code and it takes you right to the app store to install the app and you're good to go. And, you know, there is there is also something good to be said for that model in that one of the frustrations I've had reviewing devices is frequently they'll just say, oh, go install such and such app. And they'll just, you know, kind of say like, you know, their own name for it and be very nonspecific. And you go to look it up in the Play Store or in the, you know, Apple App Store and this generic sounding name, there's like 50 different things there. And some of them look scammy as hell. And you don't know which is the right one. Whereas if you're a device manufacturer and you put a QR code in your packaging and say, just scan this QR code to install our app, that's a chain of trust for the user. The problem with the parking meters is that you think you have that chain of trust, except that everybody has physical access to the meter, and it's very easy to just cover over the real QR code with your own QR code. And that can take you to a malicious application to install, and all sorts of nasty shenanigans can happen from there. It's much worse if they're actually taking over your phone by installing a malicious app versus just sending you to the wrong website to pay. I mean, both. Don't leave any money on the table, right? <laughs> Get them to make a payment in your malicious app. But the thing that I find interesting about this is that, you know, we're talking about it as a novel thing. It's absolutely not a novel thing. It's a very slight adaptation to a very common technique, which is credit card skimming. When you go to buy gasoline at a gas station, you're supposed to, not enough people do, but um, you're supposed to check the pump. You know, the, the place where you stick your card in, if it looks a little bit bulky, if there's enough material there to grab onto, you should grab it and yank on it. Because if something comes out, that's a credit card skimmer. And it was getting your credit card information in addition to the pump getting your credit card information. And that's one of the many ways you can end up scammed out of money. 
this is the same thing. It's a skimmer. You're just adding your own thing on top of the thing that's there that people trust and thereby, you know, gaining the money that they were trying to send the place that they thought they were sending it to. Well, it's a little bit worse than a skimmer because you're not actually paying for parking. So your car still gets towed. Fair. But yeah, it is just a, a change on that. And for some of it, I don't see the easy way around it. Like, I think somewhere else in the thread, they mentioned, you know, if you have a like an LED screen and you could actually digitally display the QR code, then you could make it obvious that, you know, this is the real one, not a sticker. But then, you know, the parking meter needs more power and those screens are probably not going to be very vandal proof and they'll get scratched up to the point where you can't read them or somebody will just purposely try to bust it. Or Yeah. Have you seen how cheap stickers are? Alan? We're talking about governments here. Yeah. It still kind of comes down to the same set of techniques because generally at least the government shouldn't be using simple stickers themselves to put the QR code on there. It should be embossed onto the parking meter. Like it's part of the paint job. So it kind of comes down to the same thing with the skimmer. Like you don't need to be an electronics expert to detect credit card skimmers on the gas pump. You just have to know, Hey, let me grab this thing and yank on it. And if it comes out, then well, I, I know that was a problem. So kind of the same thing here. Like if there's a sticker you can peel off, don't trust that. <laughs> And, you know, if somebody hands you a $50 bill, but the, the, the 50s are stickers on the bill, don't trust that either. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that, that doesn't work in Canada because each different denomination is a different color. Wow, I've, I've never seen a $50 bill with George Washington's face on it before. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> Why is this 50 blue instead of red? Oh, it's actually just a five. <laughs> Let's do some feedback then. Artyom said, I'm writing to you so that you could let one of your listeners know of a thing called BusyBox HTTPD. I found out about this while I was exploring the depths of TinyCore Linux for my bachelor thesis. As you probably know, BusyBox is famous for its memory footprint. If I remember correctly, TinyCore Linux and BusyBox HTTPD used something like 25 megabytes of RAM when I was running three different flat file CMS sites on a single Raspberry Pi 1 without a desktop environment. The OS is fully loaded into RAM on boot, so everything runs really fast. So this was in response to the discussion about lightweight web servers. And Gary also wrote in about that and asked, have you used the Caddy web server? It's easy to set up and does Let's Encrypt automatically. I have it running on a dev machine on Volta as a proxy to a Flask application. Am I going to regret it? The, uh, the BusyBox HTTPD sounds very similar to Tiny HTTPD, which I have used in the past, but I did not recommend in our earlier show because... It's gone largely, if not entirely, unmaintained for a long time. Again, you know, it's just a thing of if you need the absolute tiniest web server possible, it might be worth messing around with this stuff. But if you're not in an incredibly memory constrained embedded environment, it's just not worth it. Now, when it comes to Caddy, that's a whole different ball of wax. Caddy absolutely can be more convenient than a traditional web server like Apache or Nginx. It performs reasonably well. A lot of devs, particularly just kind of like the style in which it's administered, uh, it goes very well with Docker containers. So if that's a, a thing that you're into, you'll probably like Caddy as well. I don't really like Caddy that much as a more traditional sysadmin operating at a larger scale. And if you're not doing, you know, highly containerized stuff, I think it tends to be a bit less applicable. But ultimately, if it performs well enough for what you need at the scale that you're at and, you know, the, the amount of hardware that you have it running on, then by all means use it. I've, I've got nothing negative to say about it. It just doesn't fit my personal sysadmin style as well as Apache or Nginx do. Yeah, I guess for me, it's just I've spent like 15 years 
being an Nginx expert. And so I can always make it go as big or as small as I want it to. And I've been using Acme.sh for the Let's Encrypt bits and I get those to work together just fine. And I do most of my Let's Encrypt in DNS rather than via HTTP. And so having it built into Caddy wouldn't provide me much of an advantage. But I think I agree with Jim that if you're doing it more like I want to package my web application as a container and I want to use Caddy, then sure, you know, almost any reasonable web server is going to be able to web server that. You know, Nginx was designed to solve the the C10K problem, 10,000 concurrent clients in a small amount of RAM, and it does that very well. And so it means it still scales down very well, but it can also scale up and and you see things like, you know, the Netflix CDN using it to serve 100 or 200 gigabits per second out of one machine with one copy of Nginx running. Whereas typically the approach with Caddy, if you want to scale up, is not you have a single Caddy instance serving 10,000 connections. It's I fire up multiple of these things in multiple containers that get distributed probably over a whole bunch of different physical hosts. But I, I'm not thinking about all that. I'm, I'm not worried about it. My mindset is just, oh, I'm firing up more instances of my container, each of which is running its own caddy, each of which are all configured the same way because that's all baked into the container package itself. If that's the way that you want to scale your web application, caddy will suit you very well. If you're doing a more traditional sysadmin style setup where you might still say, hey, I want to serve 10,000 users, but the way you're doing that is you're being more surgical about it. And you're saying, okay, these are the amount of resources that I need to serve my 10,000 concurrent connections on a VM or four VMs or two physical hosts or whatever, but I'm managing the stack the whole way down. Caddy doesn't work that well for that. I mean, you can make it work, but that's not really what it's designed for. And I would definitely recommend Apache or Nginx over it in that instance. But like I said, again, if you're more like, no, I just want to make a container and my idea of scaling is, well, if my one container won't do it, then spin up more container, more container go, you will like Caddy. Caddy will be for you. It will very much fit in with your admin, dev, and ops lifestyle. Yeah, it sounds like it's the difference between sysadmin and DevOps. Yeah, it really is. It can be. And like you can use Nginx to do DevOps stuff, like anything Caddy can do, Nginx can do basically. But if you're used to doing things in a certain way and, and you know, you're like the static Go binary that's going to, it's compiled once and it'll just run on all these different Linuxes. I don't know what the base OS is under it's going to end up being or what the libraries are going to be. And it's not going to break if OpenSSL gets upgraded. That has some advantages. But although, you know, if it's using OpenSSL and it's statically compiled, it means that it's not going to get updated when you update the OpenSSL in your system. But I guess it's Go, so it uses its own. It has its own SSL library, right? Right. The it's it's not going to get because when you're doing things that way, you're not worried about the SSL library on the system. You're worried about the SSL library inside that container, and the way you fix it is you upgrade your container and you deploy your new upgraded containers that have the new libraries and the new whatever and yada yada yada, and you replace all of them. Because again, the whole administration concept when you're operating that way is. I'm not thinking about the hardware. I'm not thinking about any of that. My idea of scaling is I know that one of these containers will serve about this many people. And if I need more people, then I spin up more copies of this container and they go where they go. And I don't think about it. I don't care. Hopefully I just get more performance out of dumping more stuff at it. If that's how you want to administer your stuff, that's kind of the DevOps mindset. And again, if that's what you're doing, Caddy was very specifically designed for your way of life and it will work very well for you. In my experience, 
it does not perform as well as Nginx or Apache do. But with that said, again, if you're doing this DevOpsy thing and saying, my idea of scale is throw more containers at it, you don't care as much about the individual efficiency because you've basically kind of already made the decision, I'm not chasing maximal efficiency per unit. What I'm chasing is simplicity of deployment and simplicity of thinking about scale to just say, I just dump more stuff at it and go and let it sort its own self out. Yeah, you could use any of the web servers in this situation, but you know, just because you can put a screw in with a hammer doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Part of this and part of the reason, again, that I'm not as fond of Caddy, if you're making a web server that serves a bunch of different sites that aren't necessarily directly related, you can do that with Caddy. It's kind of going to suck compared to configuring Apache or Nginx to do the same job. With Caddy, what you really want, again, is the your DevOps mindset again, which is if I've got five different sites, well, each one of those sites has its own container, and that container does nothing but serve that site. And when I want more performance for that site, I dump more containers for that site out there to operate. You don't have the same container serving jimsaltersconsulting.com and alanjudesconsulting.com. You've got a container for Alan Jude, and you've got a container for Jim Salter, and you drop as many of them out there into your... Kubernetes or Docker or whatever, you know, farm as you need to do the thing. Hey, Jim, stop trying to put me in a box. (laughs) (laughs) No one puts Alan in a box. And uh, one last thing before we depart from the Caddy topic, I did a fairly extensive review of Caddy for Ars Technica a couple of years ago. And uh, I think Joe's going to put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, will do. Okay, Peter says, no, ransomware is not just an ordinary disaster recovery situation. Disaster recovery is just about getting systems back up and running and getting access to all of your data. With a ransomware attack, you have a lot more work to do. You should be contacting the legal authorities because a crime has been committed. You may have to deal with legal issues if personally identifiable information was lost to thieves. Yes, this is a sysadmin thing. Do you have the logs and records the authorities will require? Do you have proof of due diligence that your lawyers are going to ask you for to defend you from the people who sue you for losing their information? Peter's not wrong about all that, but what Peter's describing is any compromise incident. That That's not ransomware specifically, and that's not what the ransomware part of it does. The issue is that ransomware is a symptom that you have been compromised in some way, which may or may not have included humans going in and doing other nefarious things beyond what the ransomware does in a completely automated hands-free way, which is just encrypt all your crap. So you have to find out if data has been exfiltrated, which again is a thing that you, you do need to be looking for, but is not necessarily something that happened because you got ransomware. The majority of ransomware attacks and really all of what the ransomware itself does is it boils down to trashing all your data and, you know, then then demanding a ransom in order to get a key to decrypt it all again. The other stuff is follow on. And yes, it matters. And yes, you have to deal with it. But my argument here is that part's not ransomware. That part is you got compromised. Yeah, it can get a bit confusing when the people that exfiltrated your data now try to ransom it back to you. And then it even becomes a ransom, but it's it's not necessarily ransomware, which is, uh, I don't know, maybe we actually picked a slightly poor term for it. It should have been like, I don't know. Well, you can't use crypto anything to describe it, but. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's, it's really two separate things. You know, XFIL is not ransomware. 
the only way that the Exil becomes ransom is when it's not, they're not selling the data back to you. They're selling you a promise that they'll delete their copies of your data. And that is absolutely a thing that happens. I've had to deal with that when clients got hit by an advanced persistent threat. But that's when you're talking about, I got hit by an advanced persistent threat that researched enough about my organization to figure out what data was worthwhile and how to threaten me in a way that, you know, I might want to pay them to go away quietly so I don't have to deal with all this stuff and I don't have to admit to people that the data got exfiltrated. But again, that's APT shenanigans, which is another thing that can come with ransomware, but it's a separate thing. You know, it's like, I don't know, you have a lightning storm and your hard drives get fried. Oh, and also half of your building caught on fire. Now, these events both happened and they're connected, but it's it's two different things. You can't just say, oh, well, I lost data and therefore my building's on fire, you know? Recently had to do a due diligence questionnaire from our insurance company for our errors and omissions insurance, and it has some cyber elements to it. And it's like, you know, do you, does your email have two-factor authentication and a bunch of other questions like that. And it's like, yeah, it turns out that the insurance companies are not going to want to pay out for this stuff. So they want you to promise that you do all these things that are going to mitigate it. And then when you didn't, they're going to be like, yeah, you're on your own. Sorry. Although the fun part is they actually have no idea which of those things really do or do not mitigate anything. Exactly. It's more a maze that you as the rat have to navigate if you want to have any chance of getting to the cheese at the far end. They don't want to give you the cheese. They want you to get lost in the maze. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to find out more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, Show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, David writes to us, can you point to a guide or give some pointers on database maintenance? I'm a Linux sysadmin enthusiast and have a 10-year-old TTRSS install that's showing its age. Half the problem is the hardware, 32-bit via CPU, 1 gigabyte of RAM spinning Rust, and trust me, I'm working on a replacement. However, the install worked better years ago when it was fresh or after marking thousands of articles in TTRSS as read. The system started as Debian Wheezy and migrated to Dev1 Jesse and then Dev1 ASCII without any DB maintenance beyond recommended updates, which included a transition from MySQL to MariaDB. I have the impression that there's some tasks I should be doing in the database to keep it responsive. Besides backups, updates, and a proper hardware lifecycle, what should I have been doing? Well, 
not changing from Debian to Dev1 and changing your database from MySQL to MariaDB, surely that's just asking for trouble, all of that. No. No, nah. oh, that's fine. It's just upgrading the operating system is normal. And the MySQL and MariaDB are the same thing under the hood, so it doesn't matter that much. Although I, w- yeah, I will say this, David didn't say how he migrated. And although it would almost certainly work, it's very bad practice to just try to move your, your database binaries over and run them under a different, you know, major version of MySQL or go from MySQL to MariaDB. It will almost always work, but it's not how you should do it. When you're doing a, a significant version migration for database, you should be backing up the database by dumping it and then restoring it into the new one. Because there can be odd little differences in the binary storage between major versions or between different database engines. Yeah, although in general, with MySQL and MariaDB, just running the MySQL upgrade script after to fix the schemas and so on generally does fine. I've not had any trouble with it. Uh, yeah, obviously... Doing a full dump and restore will basically defragment the tables and also recreate the indexes and make sure they're not got a bunch of holes in them from things you deleted or changed the size of. Although you can get most of that effect by just doing an alter table and setting the database engine to inodb, especially if it's already inodb. So basically setting the engine back to the same one it already is will basically copy the whole table to a temporary table and then rename it over top of the old one. Counterpoint, Alan. The original database is running on a 32-bit via CPU with one gig of RAM on spinning rust. Yeah. Therefore, it is not a large database and it will not be prohibitive to properly dump it and restore it to make certain you've right. done it right and you don't have any lingering weirdness or there wasn't a bug in the alter table right. or a bug in the MySQL upgrade script. Dump it, restore it. Do it. <laughs> right. I was just like the, the alter table thing is something that happens in a couple of my databases like once a month just to defragment it because it's going to improve performance. Because if you delete a lot of rows and then MySQL decides to insert the new rows in those blank spaces, and then all, when you're doing a table scan, everything's out of order and it just causes more random IO. And so I did alter table just to basically sort the database on a fairly regular basis where I've maybe not even changed the version of the database and, and didn't want to do a full dump restore every time. But yes, I think the biggest thing for this would just be a dump restore. And the other thing to look at is just, well, looking at why a query is slow, it's because you have a via CPU that's probably, I don't think they made those past about a gigahertz. And I don't think they've made them in the last 20 years. So those the via's got to be awfully old. Um the other thing to look at is just what the indexes are in that database. If you're doing all your queries based on the date and there's no index on the date, maybe that's something you want to have. Uh, and that'll make so that you're not scanning the entire database so much. Although just having a little bit more RAM means that you'd be able to have all the indexes in RAM and not have this problem either. <laughs> now that we're getting into DBA stuff, I do need to mention that while Alan is absolutely correct and you need to have an index on columns that you sort by or search by, do not make the rookie mistake of going and just putting an index on every column in your table or in your database. It will absolutely murder performance if you put unnecessary indexes on tons and tons of things you aren't actually ordering by or searching on. Every index you have increases the cost of every insert or update because it has to go and update all these indexes. It can only speed up the searching. And if you do more inserting than you do reading, 
which is probably for this in the case of this RSS thing where it's grabbing everything from RSS feeds and inserting it. And then only sometimes do you bother reading them. You might actually care more for the speed of the inserts rather than the speed of the selects. I will also say that, you know, given that David is talking about a specific application that presumably the application already creates its own database and in theory manages its own database, it should have architected its own database properly. And up to a point, as just a sysadmin that wants to install the application and make thing go, it's a reasonable assumption that I probably shouldn't be messing about with the architecture of this. However, I have encountered quite a lot of projects, including the invoicing system that I'm using for my own business, which is an, an open source project, that, you know, I get the thing and it starts behaving poorly after it's got, you know, a few tens of thousands of rows in it. And I take a look and I'm like oh my God, there are no indexes on any of the primary key fields, any of the secondary key fields, any of the fields that I you know, frequently reorder my data on in the UI for the application. And then I go in and you know, I add indexes where they're needed and delete a few where they're not and convert a few tables from you know, my ISOM to NODB to, to make it more reliable and you know, crash safe. And all that is fine if you know what you're doing or if you're willing to deal with the consequences. If you don't know what you're doing and you screw it up and you're confident you can get it back the way it's supposed to go. However, we are getting pretty deep into some dark and gloomy woods. If you're just like, I just want a sysadmin and I, I want to be a sysadmin and that's that's all I want. I'm not a developer. I don't want to be a database, a, a real DBA that develops and architects databases, then stay out of that. <laughs> So back to David's original question, is the answer, get some better hardware. Even a Raspberry Pi would be better than that by the sounds of things. The SD card on the Raspberry Pi would probably actually be worse than the spinning rust in this case. But having a bit more RAM would be better. Yeah, but you can boot from a USB SSD. But yeah, anyway, get a proper machine, probably something low-end x86 would be better. And dump the database and import it again. Yeah, that's the big one. It's just dump the database and re-import it. And then it'll be as if all those inserts just happened and it'll all be in the right order and it'll be much cleaner. And you'll rebuild all those indexes if there are any. Because, you know, to Jim's point about not getting lost in the woods doing this, you know, my other thought was, well, if you've been running it that long, you maybe want to trim some of the old entries. But if they're normalized and, you know, they depend on rows and other tables and so on, you don't want to be doing that manually either. Yeah, you do that in the application. You, you delete things that you're done with and the application should take care of all that. I would also like to mention that we're not telling you that you have to just constantly be dumping and restoring tables in your database. However, the periodicity of that would probably have worked quite well for all the various upgrades and migrations you've already described. Uh, you know, if you're doing that when you go from Debian Wheezy to Dev1 Jesse, and when you're doing it again when you go from Dev1 Jesse to Dev1 ASCII, and when you're doing it again when you go from MySQL to MariahDB, well, you said this thing is 10 years old, and then it has you doing that every couple of years, and and that's more than sufficient. If you keep everything running tip-top and, you know, compacted and not fragmented and and all those good things. Yeah, until a couple of years ago, Postgres, that was, you had to do that every time you upgraded major versions. There was no choice but to dump and restore. They have some slightly better stuff now for people that need to, you know, keep the databases, uh, a cluster of databases running have high availability and so on. But it's still always a good idea that if you have the opportunity to just dump and restore means that A, you're testing your backup and B, your database is all clean again. Yeah, that's the other thing is the the dump and restore should not be a major ask of somebody who's actually maintaining a database and making themselves responsible for it because that's 
how you back up the database. And as we always say, you need to be backing up and you need to be practicing restores so that you know how to do it. You know, you're safe and you know you're good. Now, if it's just a case of, oh, well, this is just, you know, it's a thing that, you know, I like to run sitting at home and it, you know, makes my life a little easier. But if it dies, you know, that's not going to be a huge deal. And all right, I can understand not backing it up. If your position is like, this is a mission critical thing, this matters, it has to work. If it goes away, I need to be able to bring it back. Then you're right back into that hole. You should already be doing dumping and restores regularly so you know how to do it and know you have the data and know you can recover anyway. So doing this as part of a migration is not a big ask at all. I think the only database I have that's not backed up regularly is the Postgres that backs my Quasal IRC client. Because, yeah, I don't care about two-year-old message history if that database goes away. Or, David, what you could do is start using Feedly and a proper distro that has systemd. Shots fired. I'd use a BSD and not systemd, but <laughs> anyway. But I wouldn't use a via CPU from, I don't even, I can't even think of how old that would be. Yeah. Not to be shaming people for their hardware, but that's, that's old. Like, I don't think that's saving any power. That's how old that is. No, that is absolutely not saving any power. Possibly saving e-waste, but that's about it. What are the, like N050, I think, or the, the new, like really bottom of the barrel Celerons would just absolutely murder that thing for performance as well as power efficiency. Although just doing some Googling, it sees that Via still makes some CPUs and they actually have a quad core, although it only goes up to 1.4 gigahertz and quad core and 45 watts. So not saving oh. any power. But for tiny, tiny RSS, you really don't need that much power, it seems. Right. But like if that's a an old VSC7, that's 12 watts, but it's that's only at 1.6 gigahertz. That's 90 nanometer. 90? Wow. You can go on Amazon or Newegg or whatever and get the absolute cheapest Chromebook or Windows intended Celeron, you know, and whatever laptop for $200 or less. And it will outperform that thing in every conceivable dimension. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.